It does not take a Barton level scholar to see where the holdovers is going, but that doesn't mean there isn't a tremendous amount of rich, warm, full hearted fun to be had on the way to the obvious destination. That's Barry Hertz at Global Mail. He's talking about one of the best pictures of the year. That's right. Paul Giamatti stars in the holdovers from writer director Alexander Payne. You know, the World Series is over now that I'm watching a ton of movies, five movies to review this week on Cinephile, not only the holdovers, but also Five Nights at Freddy's. That's right. FNAF, which is just a phenomenon among the tweens these days. The Barrel, which I watched last week on Amazon Prime. No Hard Feelings, I finally saw. Summer Comedy with Jennifer Lawrence. Watched that in the flight back from Arizona. I was just, that feels like a flight movie if I've ever heard one. It's just like, I don't see anything else good. Sure, I'll watch this one. <laughs> Completely nailed it. And Scorsese was unbelievable. On TCM, Turner Classic Movies, his favorite channel. As I told Cody recently, he talked about content. He goes, content to me is like when I'm around the house, I just put on TCM. So they had him as a guest programmer on TCM. It was amazing. So he talked about five Westerns that he recommended in honor of Killers of the Flower Moon. One of them is the 1948 film Blood on the Moon, starring Robert Mitchum. I saw it. It's fantastic. I'll give you a review. That's our new, that's our old, and our wild card is a guy named Tom Zimney. Don't call me Thom. T-H-O-M. Uh, the documentary is called Sly. It's technically six movies we're reviewing this week. Sly, the story of Sylvester Stallone told in his own words, available right now on Netflix. Tom talking about one of my favorite movies, Copland. Great Stallone movie, obviously Rocky, Rambo, and all the rest of it. So really good episode here. And as always, appreciate the feedback to Cinephile. Thanks, as always, to all of you. Go to Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to Chris Cody for boosting the audio last week from John LeBoy, smuggling in Scorsese and Colbert together. You could hear him chuckling in it. Yeah, he, he did tell me he goes tell cody really good job boosting the audio and he goes i, I was able to hear my chuckles and i can hear that i was on cinephile and i told the boy to come on but i appreciate somebody that knows themselves he goes honestly dude i wouldn't be good at it you know he's, he's one of these guys more of a behind the scenes kind of kind of cat but uh he's awesome and i can't thank him enough for helping me out i also love the fact my cousin texted me feedback on you and then i said listen i forwarded it to cody but but fully on brand cody didn't respond to your text and so this is what he texted me and i, I love the fact you just completely ignored it he said, regarding Cody's thoughts and Killers of the Flower Moon, Plemons was young because the FBI was brand new. He was understated purposely. Those he was investigating couldn't get a read on him. Uh, for those who missed it, Cody said last week, I would have liked an older guy, like a Tommy Lee Jones. That's fair. Molly knew he was pursuing her because of the money, but also because he did, in fact, find her attractive. And like she said, he wanted to be settled. He was seeking a family. She knew he wasn't going to kill her and or the children. It's a delicate balancing act that reflects what the Osage and other colonized groups grow through. Their masters are both friend and foe simultaneously. Right. Like if if he only has a couple flaws, he's keep he's a keeper. Right. He's definitely money hungry, but hopefully he doesn't kill me. <laughs> He, he could be worse. At the end of the day, he is kind of handsome. That's the good news. Uh, the big news is this. Cody is back from Germany. And as he had told me last week, he said, I'm going. Uh, for those who are not football fans, Chiefs Dolphins played in Frankfurt. Excellent game. Unfortunately, the good guys did not win for Cody. But uh, and I said to him, listen, you got to make sure, you know, when you get these kind of trips, Steve Levy, the master of this, like he'd go to Vegas for the Golden Knights and they'd be like, you got to extend the trip. So, you know, work's going to send you for Friday to Sunday. You go, no, no, I'm flying in Wednesday and I'm staying till Tuesday, whatever it is. So I was smart moved by you. You went like maybe a day or two early. You still hustled back after the game. But talk to me about Germany. First time ever was the Germans. What do you got? Uh, guten Tag. That means hello. It doesn't really fit right here. But uh, I enjoyed it, dude. It was really, the people were genuine, really nice. Frankfurt, I would say, was is an Americanized city, especially with all the NFL people around. Right. <clears throat> most most uh, Uber drivers could speak enough English. Um, very friendly people. Good food. Uh, me, and Ju me and Juju had a lot of fun. Juju dapped up Roger Goodell before the game. He did? That was probably the highlight. Yeah, oh we were just... God. 
because like Goodell was kind of in PR mode, walking around, just like kissing babies, shaking hands, and Juju like just got in his path and got a dap. I got it on video. It was just, it was really fun, man. It was so cool. It was a weird experience watching an NFL game there because it was just like a, a lot of NFL fans. Like it wasn't right. just Chiefs and Dolphins fans. Like there was, I'm surrounded by Matt Ryan jerseys and CJ Spiller jerseys and like just CJ random Spiller. NFL fans. So like it was more of a lot of like the fans were kind of just cheering for football yeah. rather than the specific teams. But overall, really cool experience. Yeah, I don't know if you can necessarily spot a German or an American. You probably can. But I remember watching the game and look at the crowd. I go, it just looks like a bunch of Americans. Like, I don't I don't feel like I'm in Frankfurt. So what you're describing to me, at least just on my couch, kind of felt accurate. No, nah, it was a split. I would say there was a lot of Still a lot European. Of yeah. There were a lot of European football fans who are supporters of random teams that are just like, I don't ever get to see football, so I'm going to go watch it. So That's cool. there were definitely a lot of Americans. Like, it was a good split. But yeah. there were also a lot of just people that were from Europe, and they've traveled from somewhere in Europe to come. And it was just like, oh, I wanted to experience football. It's just, it was it was a definitely, That's awesome. it was a cool trip for sure. And the food, of course. I mean, a lot of sausage oh. and beer, right? That's to, not not a lot of uh, salads <laughs> in uh, in Germany. Uh, yeah, I got some some Wiener Schnitzels, some bratwurst. I had a great bratwurst at the game. Custom beers. You know how it goes. Nice. All right. So Germany gets two thumbs up. Uh, it did. And 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 also, I thought that going for only three days because yeah. I've always thought if you're going across the pond to Europe, like you got to give it a week or else it's not enough. Mm-hmm. It was three three days was fine. I love that point. As you know, I was ready to come home. No, as, as you know. <laughs> My mom's family grew up in England. Whenever she's like, you got to go to England and see like all my family and stuff, mainly cousins now. You need at least two weeks. I'm like, I don't think I do. I think I can be there three days and I can go, hey, I'm in town. Whoever wants to come, here's where I'm going to be. If you want to come see me, that's great. And I'll go check out Buckingham Palace and Trafalgar Square and whatever the hell, Big Ben. We're good to go. So I feel the same way. And the jet jet lag wasn't terrible either. Seven hour flight from right? Nine. Ugh. That was not me saying no. Isn't that no in Germany? Yeah, right. Nine. nine. Yeah, you have a good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you said it. Nine. It was nine. Al Michaels made that joke somehow. I can't remember. I have to look this up, the reference. But there was a baseball game or something. He, he used that in a good context on the air. Um, <laughs> all right. Me and Bob Costas, two nine, mate, yeah. two nine jokers. And Scott Spinelli, my buddy, who sounds like Costas, as you said. Did you get first class or no? Uh, hardly. I was going to say, Metal Arc is not going to. Like, the fact Metal Arc sent you, I'm like, okay. I'm like, they're not going to. I had to fight for business class. <laughs> a little wiener schnitzel. I'm glad you went. I'm, I'm glad when I saw you and Juju together again. Go to the uh, social media. You'll see there's videos of Chris and, and Juju there. Quick, quick, just Please. airline, airline, international flights. Yeah. The meals that they serve you don't need them. Get him out of wow, here. Wow. Okay, that's an interesting just, take. We can disagree with. Now, now, in fairness to you, because I'm for work, I'm traveling first class. Food's always pretty good. I feel like it's a hot roll. I love the nuts. Nice warm the nuts. Stale, you love that stale piece of bread, huh? I, I tell you, you I get a that. good warm roll when I travel, and it's a good piece of you chicken, like that, a nice piece of pie. You rip off that sad tinfoil foil. No, no tinfoil. There's an actual roll there, and then the chicken uh, I think they give you're me. Seeing, I think you have different in, I, I in, think in you're economy. Right. Yes, yeah. I think you're right. I think <laughs> there's different meals. Because you're right. When I've traveled my kids, the economy meal, brutal. Cold. It's oh, uncooked. It's, like, it's not cold. It's really hot, but if you take it over, it looks like ravioli that's been sitting in this thing for seven years. It was just and like the second time. The, $18. The first, no, that it's included. Okay, that's in the it's but in the flight. But the first one I, I opened it, I, I took it because I didn't want to be the guy that's like, no. Yeah. I took it, looked at it, didn't eat it. Second one around, I was like, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, I love that when you get the second meal. Like you want I'm like, oh, I'm fine, thanks. I really don't uh, I'm just gonna starve myself and get the wiener schnitzel. Uh, we want to keep the streak going of Killers in the Fire Moon every single week if possible. I'm holding up the GQ copy 
Timothee Chalamet is on the cover. In the corner, you can see Martin Scorsese, the icon profile. It's a great, great read. It's a November issue of GQ. Back to the topic that Chris and I have discussed. I mean, GQ, I guess, eight bucks for the, to the GQ. On the way back from Arizona, I wanted to make sure I had some reading material. And I'm pretty sure, again, first class, I'll get a movie. But on the way to Dallas, there was no TVs. And from Dallas to Arizona, no TVs. So I'm like, let me hedge my bets. I grabbed a Sports Illustrated basketball preview issue. Do you want to guess how often does SI print now? I know you don't have a subscription, nor do I. I did for years, as I'm sure you did. But guess how often they, they print their stuff. I mean, I was assuming every month. But... It's a monthly issue. Okay. But but within reading it, within five minutes, well, this is outdated. Like, there's a Verducci article about Acuna. I'm like, no, no, the Braves are done. Like, why am I reading this? Guess the price of a Sports Illustrated. I remember as a kid, $3.49 an issue. I subscribed. It was $51. You get a dollar an issue. I'm gonna guess that's gone up a lot. Nine bucks, ten ninety nine an issue. Like who? Who the hell is buying eleven dollars Sports Illustrated, which is a monthly issue? Now, in this instance, I do agree a preview is good because it was NBA preview. I'm like, hey, you know, I'll get caught up on my NBA stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, Porzingis is on the Celtics now. Okay, yeah, cool, got it. But I'm like, I, I I'm amazed that SI is still in business. Eleven dollars an issue for monthly issues. Regardless. That's how they're still in business. Exactly, it's five times what they used to charge. So eleven bucks for that. But the more importantly was the GQ because I will go. Oh, yeah, that Marty article. Boom, eight bucks to me is pretty good. This this excerpt I found particularly interesting. It is a particular fact about Martin Scorsese. He doesn't not enjoy making movies. I don't mean to be funny, he said, but the thing is, you get up real early. And Scorsese has never been a morning person. For most of his life, he recalled, I stay up late watching movies on television or reading late or doing homework late or trying to write scripts late. I lived at night and the streets were dark. I never saw the light. It took me many years to understand where the sun set and where the sun rose. I didn't know. I'm not kidding. I learned it in L.A. When you're going on Sunset Boulevard and you hit the Pacific Coast Highway and it's seven o'clock and the sun is setting, it's right there. He likes to borrow a complaint from Kubrick. They said, what's the hardest thing about directing? He said, getting out of the car. Because once you get out of the car, the questions start. Now when Scorsese gets out of the car in the morning, he looks at his AD, that's the assistant director, and says, what can't I have today? Amazing to think about. America's greatest living director doesn't particularly like making movies because he doesn't want to get up early. Does he want the AD to, to like handle all the little decisions? It's a great question because he would strike me as like a micromanager. I would think he wants involvement in everything, but I think you're right. I think he's kind of like, you take care of the little stuff. I'll do the broad strokes. Just give me the big stuff. Because he said- Like, I pay you to know when I need to be involved. Yeah. Like, you make, I, I hired you because you're, you have my sensibilities. Yes. Make my life easier. It's a good way to put sensibilities is the right word for it. I found with our casting director, Ellen Lewis, who was fantastic, right? She just got Marty's sensibilities. Like, I've worked with this guy for 30 years. I know what he likes. I know what he doesn't like. Like, all right, we're good there. He's definitely hands on the editing room. Like, you know, some directors give it to the editor. He's right there in the editing room, which I could definitely picture. Him and fellow screwmaker, like, one more frame here, one more frame there. But yeah, I think the AD is kind of like, just give me the basic stuff. Here's the extra. He doesn't want like, catering stuff or what yes. time are we starting yes. this let's yes. like talk to him about that exactly so i thought it was an interesting uh blurb there you can definitely check that out um as i'd mentioned previously i had one of the great days off ever at the world series eagles win at a back-to-back doubleheader of movies at two different movie theaters so i saw the killer as i reviewed last week and again that's gonna be on netflix this friday i encourage people to check it out despite my lukewarm review i still give it three beliefs fincher is definitely a very talented director has a unique style and i love michael fassbender and now we get to the one i really want to talk about which is the holdovers did break my heart i reached out to laura brandt our guest director and i said can we get alexander Payne on he's the writer and director of this new film called the holdovers he's made citizen ruth election with reese witherspoon matthew broderick sideways the descendants with george clooney and the one that didn't do well, downsizing with Matt Damon. Unfortunately, Alexander Payne said no. 
So I'll have to excerpt for you the podcast he did do with my buddy Scott Feinberg, which was excellent, in which he talked about this movie. And I'll, I'll incorporate that within my review. Here is what the movie is about, though, just so I can try to sell Chris and anybody listening. The cranky history teacher at a remote prep school is forced to remain on campus over the holidays with a troubled student who has no place to go. So the first thing Payne said is he goes, I'm from Nebraska. Like He went to school in Nebraska and he goes, you know, I watch these movies. I watch Scorsese's movies or Spike Lee's movies and they're so New York, right? Paul Thomas Anderson's movies are very LA, San Fernando Valley. He's like, I'll be the Nebraska guy. So he's like, all my movies I try to set within Nebraska, I have Nebraska themes. Actually, a film called Nebraska, of course. Bruce Stern was excellent in that movie, Black and White. So in this instance, he goes, well, I'll set it in Nebraska. But then I'm like, well, actually, it's more like a New England feel. He's like, okay. He's like, what I want to do is make a 1970s movie, that 1970s feel, but not too much of that actual realism. He's like, so I want it to feel like the 70s because I think period pieces make more sense, but not every detail has to be precise, which is an interesting little work. He's also back with Giamatti, who famously worked with on Sideways. And he said, the thing about Giamatti is this. He's a movie star, but you don't think it. He goes, I'll explain. He said on Sideways, when I cast him, I go, this is the guy. Like I knew right away. And then Thomas Hayden Church was the other role. And he goes, we literally have this one guy who's this dyspeptic wine snob and this macho idiot trying to cheat on his wife before he gets married. That, that, that's the movie. And he goes, I find movies like that, road movies, the two characters are like one character together. So it's like I'm making a, a comment about men, you know, and the, the one side of this man, the duality of man is wine snob, self-loathing, can't get his book published, miserable teacher. The other guy's, again, macho idiot, horny, just wants to bang chicks before he gets married. And he goes, and the, the, the duality of that is these two guys together. And he said, now, Giamatti, I wanted to cast and we were good there. The other role, Matt Damon was interested. So was Brad Pitt. So was Edward Norton. So it's really interesting. He goes, I didn't have much money. And the studio is basically saying, well, if you cast Brad Pitt, we'll give you a lot more money. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't see Brad Pitt in this role. I think it's Thomas Hayden Church, who's a, a, at the time a very unknown actor. So because I cast it, I did a read through three times with Thomas Hayden Church. I'm like, he's the guy. Which made me to think, imagine you and I are making a movie and they say, Cody, we'll give you $10 million if you get Levitar. If you don't, if it's Billy, we're going to have to go $5 million. And it makes you think as an artist, you say, well, I want the bigger the budget, the more I can do with it, the more people will see it. Or but Billy fits the role better. Correct. And that's what he ended up doing. So I, I just kept thinking, I got to watch sideways again. I want to picture Brad Pitt as the macho idiot. Because I do think he'd nail the role. as like this horn dog trying to like bang everything he can. Like I could definitely see Brad Pitt or Edward Norton doing that. But Tom Church filled the role and he's incredible in sideways. And, and he said, you know, almost 20 years later, it's really cool to make a movie that people still remember. And he goes, it isn't that... People quote it to him or rewatchable, but like if they say something like, "Hey, that scene in, in the Descendants where Clooney's talking about his, you know, wife passing away, that really moved me or that touched me," because that's really what you make movies for. Without sounding hokey, because like the reviews are nice, obviously the awards are nice, money is good, but when someone goes, "Hey, your film was really memorable or touched me," I really appreciate it, and particularly with Sideways, people really enjoy it. Twenty years later, they're watching it. So he said when he wanted to work with Giamatti again, they're like, you know, if you have a movie star, you'll get more of a budget. And I can listen. Paul Giamatti is a movie star. He goes, I know he's not Brad Pitt. He said, but to me, he's a movie star because I can put him in any movie and he nails it. And there's nobody else that's better than Paul Giamatti in this role specifically. And I knew work with Sideways. And he goes, kind of like De Niro and Marty. There's like a real shorthand. He goes, Paul would do a take. And I kind of gave him a look. He'd kind of grunt. I'm like, all right, let's do it again. Like he goes, I just, we're, we're on the same page. And he knew exactly what to do with this character. So he goes, I, I, I don't know about box office stuff. I get that. But to me, he's a movie star, plain and simple. And if you watch The Holdovers, you'll appreciate what a great actor Giamatti is. The reason why is this. He starts out, and you and I have seen movies like this. There's He's basically the grumpy old man, right? He's the grumpy teacher. Nobody likes him. Mustache, smokes a pipe, smells a little bit. None of the teachers like him. And 
he's basically looking after this one kid. The kid can't go home for Christmas because his mom, who seems like a bit of a deadbeat, is like, oh, I'm away with my boyfriend and whatever. We can't come pick you up. So he is stuck. This kid who's already kind of cranky, irritable with this cranky, unlikable teacher. And then you've got Divine Joy Randolph, who he said he cast Alexander Payne because Dolomite is my name. He loved the Eddie Murphy movie. And he said, I got to cast this woman. She's awesome. Big, black, has presence, uh, really good in um, Only Murders in the Building. She plays one of the cops. And he goes, I'm going to work with these roles. And he goes, what happens is you got Giamatti. You got this kid who's never really acted before. And then I've got her. How do I work these all together? And one thing about Alexander Payne is he can make these movies which end up being sentimental, but have a real bite to them. Uh, this is from our man Ty Blur's review. Giamatti gloriously in the lead again, playing a different kind of prickly pair. Paul Walleye Hunnam, a fusty, blustery blister of a classics teacher at a New England private school in the Christmas season of 1970. Uh, this written by a guy named David Hemmingson, normally... Payne writes a lot of his stuff, but this time he just picked it up. Divine Joy Randolph, that's the woman. She plays Mary Lamb, head cook in the Barton cafeteria, and another holiday orphan, all the lonelier since her son, one of the school's few black graduates, was recently killed in Vietnam. Since breaking through as Lady Reed opposite Eddie Murphy and Dolomite is my name, Randolph, like Giamatti, a Yale School of Drama alum, has been on a nice little run. So you got these three characters who are exactly alone. Because there's other faculty there. They go to the liquor store. They go to the hospital. They go to the bowling alley, et cetera. They go for a drink. But the story is essentially about these three characters. And when you see these kinds of movies, you go, all right, there has to be some kind of change in the movie. Curmudgeon teacher, pissed off student, angry at the world, and then this woman dealing with the grieving. And the story kind of becomes about them. And at the risk of sounding hokey, I always love movies that are more about character than about plot, right? It's about how you see the change in these characters and what kind of relationship that they will build. And again, from Burr's review, you can attend- Less plot, Claire. Yeah, Claire less plot. Claire's all in. I already texted him like, you're all in on this movie. You can attend this movie simply to worship at the altar of Paul Giamatti, and that'd be fine. With this pipe and smug air of superiority, one eye looking to the rafters and the other boring into your soul, an ache deep inside that even Libby's history of Rome can never fill. Paul Hunnam is a complete creation, moving in his grasping at the epics of history while remaining so terribly small. The Holdovers, Four Maple Leafs, it's one of my best pictures of the year. It's fabulous. I encourage everyone to check it out. And a good bounce back for Alexander Payne. He's made eight movies in 27 years. Think about that average. He only makes a movie every three and a half years. Citizen Ruth, 96. Election, 99. Very funny. About Schmidt, I didn't mention, by the way. Fantastic with Jack Nicholson. Sideways, 04. Descendants, 2011. Nebraska, 2013. And Downsizing, 2017, which even he admits, because listen, that was a misfire. Nobody liked it. I liked working with Matt. He goes, Damon's a great guy. We got along well, but I, I was trying for something different. The film just did not work out well. But this is essential Alexander Payne. Cody, I really think you're going to enjoy The Holdovers. Whenever you get a chance to see it, I think you'll really I want to check it out. I love Giamatti. You love Giamatti. I think you're going to love this movie. And uh, like I said, he's fabulous in the film because he takes that character and takes him inside out. Like you think you've seen this character before, gruff, difficult. Once he starts to show some humanity, it, it's a lovely movie. Some blurbs for you. Richard Brody of New Yorker. The calculated silences and cagey revelations result in a movie of truncated characters with truncated subjectivity, trimmed to fit the procrustean confines of the script. Yeah, sure. James Bardinelli of Real Views. Giamatti is ably matched by newcomer Dominic Sessa, who holds his own in scenes with a veteran actor and provides the glue that forms the mismatched buddy portions of the movie. By the way, this kid, pains that he cast him. He's 19 years old. He himself was a senior at the time playing a junior. He himself is in a prep school, non-professional actor, playing a guy who's obviously a real person. He goes, he was great. And he goes, the reason I knew he was good is we cast him with Giamatti. I put him in the room. 
and he was fearless. Like we had to do a scene where he's like in Giamatti's face, yelling at him. He goes completely undeterred, completely unintimidated. I was like, all right, that's the guy. He goes, a lot of other people go in there like, yeah, it's, it's Paul Giamatti, you know, big fat liar. He's like, <laughs> not this guy. He was like, no, let's go at it. Let's do it. Really good performance. I hope he ends up being a really good actor. Next up, I want to do no hard feelings quickly. As Cody predicted, this was definitely the movie to watch on the way home. On the brink of losing your home, Maddie finds an intriguing job listing. Helicopter parents looking for someone to bring their introverted 19-year-old son out of his shell before college. She has one summer to make him a man or die trying. This is one of the worst movies of the year. The premise is so bad, Cody. Matthew Broderick. Ooh, what parent would do this to their kid? This is the story. She starts out, Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, a guy shows up, tries taking her car away. He's like, yeah, you know, you're, you're defaulting on payments. So you're already setting it up that she's desperate for money. Okay, got it. She's going to lose her house. She's losing her car, blah, blah, blah. So she sees an ad. Parents saying, if you take care of our son, if you have it, show him a good time before he goes away to college, we'll give you a car. Th again, to repeat, basically, and it doesn't say SEX, but it just says, you know, show him a good time, blah, blah, blah. We'll give you a car. She goes and meets with him. And Broderick's just explaining. He's like, you know, he's a good kid. He's just introverted. We're looking, you know, to get him out of his shell. And she says, she's like, so like, do I have to have sex with him? And he's like, you know, like, just, just show him a good time. Like, you know, he goes, I, I'm worried that he's going to go to college. He goes, that's really where I had my, my sexual awakening. His wife is sitting there. She's like, oh, he's like, you know, I'm just being honest. He's like, I don't want him to go there and unprepared. She's like, okay. What parent would be like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to bribe somebody. A $25,000 car just to have sex with my son. Like, just. And and the payday for Jennifer Lawrence, like, it must have been great, right? Like, why would she take this role? She, you know, uh, Silver Linings Playbook, like, she's done roles that have been, like, really respected. This is an odd choice for her as well. No question. Now, part of the thing is on the flight, certain scenes are going to be counted out. Like, I, I could tell, like, this is one of these, like, Comedies you and I probably like back in the day, like an American Pie is what they're going for. Raunchy teen comedy. But because I'm on the flight, I was sure there was some editing, maybe not verbally, but there's one major scene, which my buddy Spinelli, this is where he was like, no, I, I knew it was going to be a terrible movie at this point. She goes skinny dipping with the kid. And the kid, is, by the way, I don't think he's a very good actor. Jennifer Lawrence is a good actress, although I don't know why she agreed to this role to your point. Like it must have been a good payday, but she's just kind of flirty, a little slutty with this guy. And he's like kind of nerdy, kind of like, hey, okay, what's going on? She says, let's go skinny dipping, like fully nude. She's there. And then people come and start taking their stuff. So she gets out. According to the reviews, she's fully nude. She wasn't, she wasn't shown, was she? Well, here's the thing. On the, on the flight, you don't see anything. It's just literally chin up. And she starts punching yeah. them. The one girl like punches her right in the puss. I'm like, oh, my God. But but it's cut a certain way. But I don't know. I read this one review. It was like, no, it's a very bold scene because she's full frontal fighting these people. And I'm like, can I, can I appreciate and support an actress willing to showcase her body in the name of art and also say the movie's terrible and say you wasted your nudity on this like if, if you want to if you want to go oh natural if you want to go in the buff can we do that for a better purpose than a crappy teen comedy so uh, i don't know if at some point i'll see it on streaming just to see what i missed so to speak but i don't think i missed much of anything to quote office space you've been missing a lot of work lately i wouldn't say i've been missing it i would skip no hard feelings i'm giving it one maple leaf i think it's one of the worst movies of the year uh, it wasn't really funny at all uh, from Stephen A. Russell of Time Out, eschewing the usual coming out tropes, his parents accepting his outing pretty smoothly and homophobic pushback from Amon's mates is kept to a bare minimum. This dance musical douse reverie thumbs the beat of punch drunk love. Yeah, not for me. I, I did not like it at all. 
Cody, are you able to get any feedback? I see you Googling right now furiously to find out. Uh, I, my bad. Like. I'm looking to see if she did indeed. It seems like she did not. Like she did get nude in this scene, and, and there's no body double either because that's what other people were wondering. Okay. Well, maybe on streaming, I will uh, get the full Monty from J-Law, but I don't think it's going to influence my opinion of the film, which is that it's a teen comedy attempting to be one of the raunchy teen comedies of the past, but fails in its pursuit because it is not particularly funny. I, and it's, it's just honestly undone by a terrible premise. I have a quote from her. Everyone in my life and my team was doing the right thing, going, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? She goes, I didn't even have a second thought. It was hilarious to me to do the nude scene. Definitely wasn't was like hilarious her. to me. And not that box office is everything, <laughs> but the movie did not do well. Box office. Go ahead and gross rate. Look it up right now. I think I think it cost, let's say, $50 million. It maybe made half of that. And again, simple logic, especially for a comedy. You want to double your budget. I did not hear people this summer talking about no hard feelings the way we talked about there's something about Mary or The Hangover. It was not a breakout comedy. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that they actually grossed 87 worldwide. What was the budget though? I got to look up the yeah, budget. It was 50. They, they 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 made 50 in the United States and 36 in Canada. Okay, so not in other territories. Maybe, uh, man, not, not as bad as I thought. But a decent outing, but I don't think it's warranted uh, the full nudity. Let's get to finesse. 45 million dollar budget. 35. 45. Oh, 45. Yeah, that's not great. That's eh, okay. Whatever. No. They, they made a little bit of money. Not bad. Jenner. $25 million for Jennifer Lawrence. $45 million budget. 25. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right. 45 the budget, 25 to yes. her. The film had a budget of $45 million with a significant portion going towards Jennifer Lawrence, $25 million. Dude, that's insane. I remember when Jim Carrey became the first actor to get $20 million. It was for The Mask. That explains it, though. Yes. Now, now we get why she made, she made the terrible movie. Right. $45 million, crappy comedy, but you're going to be 25 large up front. Okay. And uh, now I don't even know what kind of vanity we're getting. We have to go. We have to investigate now exactly what was done. But for twenty-five million, everyone has a price. Let's get to FNAF. My boy Dean's been fired up about this. Five Nights at Freddy's. A troubled security guard begins work at Freddy Fazbear's Pizza. During his first night on the job, he realizes that the night shift won't be so easy to get through. Pretty soon, he will unveil what actually happened at Freddy's. This wasn't a good movie either. This is definitely aimed towards tween audiences. So I will say, twelve-year-old Dean Burke loved it. 45-year-old Adnan Burke, not so much. My, my <laughs> issue was it was, it's not like cute enough to be the cute kids movie, but it's not scary enough to be a really scary movie. So it's about these like giant animatronic characters that are attacking and preying on people, but it, it just looks a little bit too ludicrous, like I said, to be scary. It's a little bit too kitschy. But at the same time, it's not tongue-in-cheek enough to be funny. Like It's not like Scream. It's not satirical. It's literally just a, a guy who looks like a giant bear who starts walking towards him. I know all the characters because of him. So I knew we got Freddy. I love Chica. You've got Bonnie. Bonnie's got a cupcake. Like there's, there's, I, I knew enough about it going in. But again, it's one of those films that to me isn't scary enough for a teenage audience. And it's not goofy and satirical enough for a critical audience. I don't think it's cute and cuddly enough for a young audience. Like I wouldn't let my seven-year-old watch because I'm like, no, this is kind of a scary movie. Like there's some weird shit going on. But at the same time, didn't really bring the chills and spills. I think it did pretty well at the box office. Cody can give it a quick Google, perhaps. I, I think Five Nights at Freddy's did pretty well. I watched it on Peacock ourselves, so I saved the money there. Now, this is from Clarissa Lowry of Independent. Instead of catering to the inbuilt audience ready and waiting, Five Nights waste time trying to win over people who couldn't care less. As a result, what should have been an intricate, twisted, and absurd treat is demoted to generic horror movie sludge. Miles Clee of Rolling Stone. It strains to erect a supernatural universe while neglecting to fulfill the basic promises of a scary film built on a gag premise, stretching its dreary tale of trauma to nearly two hours. 
That's why I'm giving it one and a half Maple Leafs. And one more, Jan Yamoto, uh, Los Angeles Times. It's an uneven scare fest, but the bloodthirst is at least refreshing. Interesting. Over 100 million gross. FNAF so, so felt like to me that's going to be a success. Five Nights at Freddy's, definitely at the theater in Arizona. I could see a lot of crowd milling about. Like they're all going to go see FNAF. $20 million budget. So they're yeah, killing Five it. Nights at Freddy's did well. You can enjoy it right now on Peacock. Speaking of streaming, The Burial, inspired by true events, a lawyer helps a funeral homeowner save his family business from a corporate behemoth, exposing a complex web of race, power, and injustice. It's directed and co written by Maggie Betts. Originally, I saw the trailer. Actually, I just saw a still photograph. I thought it might be a comedy. I said, oh, Tommy Lee Jones is doing a comedy with Jamie Foxx. But no, it's a straight up drama. And I thought it was a well executed one. Tommy Lee Jones plays a guy who's been bilked at a funeral homes. He hires a lawyer and Jamie Foxx is in full ham mode. He is absolutely channeling Johnny Cochran. And even a couple of times they make reference to it in the movie saying Cochran's his hero. His idol wants to be like him. So if you think of Johnny Cochran, you think of a brilliant lawyer. And you may also look at some, you know, moral arguments for the fact he's willing to, you know, defend OJ and others who perhaps uh, are not worth defending. But Fox in the role seems to be having a blast. And I could recommend The Burial just for those lead performances, particularly Jamie Foxx's Willie Gary. I mean, he's an actor, Academy Award winner for Ray, but he's got a real charisma to him. And especially a character like this who's so flamboyant, not only in his dress, but also in his speech and his articulation. He's clearly having a blast. Anytime his character's in the movie, being the lawyer that he is, slight ambulance chaser, He's definitely worth watching. Tommy Lee Jones plays Jeremiah O'Keefe. is a guy seeking justice and a strong supporting cast. Journey Smollett. But the guy I love is Alan Ruck from Spin City and Succession. He plays Mike Allred. And at one point, they're talking. Fox's character, Willie Gary, says, listen, I only ever deal with black clients and black juries. And Alan Ruck's character, Mike Allred, goes, they look at him. They can just smell the Southern racist. They can just like, this guy's not going to watch for the black jury and a black audience. So it makes you think about how provocative a topic races in America and how really that is true. You can be the smartest lawyer or the best client, but people are often going to look at race. If a guy has a certain look or feel or sheen to him, it won't work. Also, excellent supporting work by Bill Camp. He's an actor I love. Ray Lowen. Uh, he was so great in um, uh, the, uh, the Night Of with Riz Ahmed, and uh, he plays the, the, the villain in this movie. He's one of these character actors. He's like a Philip Baker Hall. He's so good. You put Bill Camp in a movie, you know he's going to bring it. He dials it up a couple of times. He's playing Ray Lowen. Again, he's the guy who's very avaricious and trying to take advantage of these funeral owners. It makes you think about funeral store owners in, in general. I mean, it's a huge business. These people make billions of dollars charging people thousands and thousands of dollars for coffins, taking advantage of people's grief, essentially, Cody. It's got to be a weird job to have. Yeah. Did you, did you ever watch um, Six Feet Under back in the day? I, on you HBO? know, I did. I heard rave reviews. People, people told me the finale was amazing. I never watched it, but odd premise. I don't honestly remember the finale. I just remember as like a teenager watching the show, and it was just, it was, I liked it, but it was definitely creepy. Yeah, creepy is the right word for it. But I thought the burn. It had was... Dexter. It had Dexter. Yes, in it, Michael C. Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, he definitely likes his death. Uh, the Burial, I recommend it. It's on Amazon Prime. If you like a good courtroom thriller, I'll give it three Maple Leafs. Do you think that guy has to look in the mirror and just be like, my two biggest roles, Dexter and Six Feet Under. <laughs> what am I giving yeah. off? <laughs> what I wouldn't give for a romantic comedy. Like, mm, that's not what we see when we look at you, Michael. We just see death. And uh, I, I didn't get my I didn't get the hangover role. <laughs> well, a couple of blurbs here for the burial, in case you're curious about checking it out. Let's see what the critics have to say. I think it got good reviews overall. Uh, Glenn Kenny of New York Times. He said something positive here as far as the actors were concerned. Specifically, he said. 
Of course, it's two lead actors give their preferred performances you'd expect from them. But how about chewing the scenery? They take the material seriously and invest in it with uh, welcome nuance. And Mick LaSalle of San Francisco Chronicle, the burial isn't a masterpiece. It was never meant to be. But what's encouraging here is finding out that bets can apply the same nuance and rigor to work a popular entertainment and turn it into something great. A couple of blurbs there. Make sure you check it out. Uh, last one, Blood on the Moon. I'll make this quick before we get to our special guest, Tom Zimney. Is this the oldest movie we've ever had? You know, we, we talked about that recently. There was one, I can't remember what it was. I think it was a James Cagney movie. I remember when I did the old, you go, this is the oldest movie we've reviewed. But I feel like that might have been 50s. I got to have to look this up. But if not, this is in the running. Blood on the Moon from 1948. We're going old school. I'll make it quick. You can put a two-minute timer on me. Unemployed cowhand Jim Gary is hired by his dishonest friend Tate Riling as muscle in a dispute between homesteaders and cattleman John Lufton. Was it Man of a Thousand Faces that we did? No, the it was movie? something okay, else. It was about like, it's very provocative in terms of the story now because it was something to do with like male and female dynamics and stuff. I can't remember uh, what it was. I'll eventually look at it There's a ton of, holy crap, did this guy make a lot of movies. Robert Wise? Cagney. Oh, Cagney. Yeah, good luck trying to find it. Well, <laughs> eventually, we'll find out what it was. But this is definitely the running for the oldest movies we've ever done. And it goes back to one of my favorite actors ever, Robert Mitchum. I believe we used the clip last week. Again, thanks to Cody for boosting the audio. But I thought it was a good question by Colbert. He said, you know, they're actors you wish you could have worked in. Because Barbara Streisand in her new memoir, I said, I wish I could have worked with Marty. And Scorsese laughed. He's like, yeah, we used to play Trivial Pursuit together. He's like, what? He's like, yeah, me, De Palma, Spielberg, Streisand. It was great. And he's like, well, what actors we worked with? And he's like, well, and I would have thought he'd go Brando right away. I think Colbert teed him up on Brando, but he actually went with, uh, I can't remember the podcast now, but whatever it was. He's uh, Spencer Tracy. He mentioned Spencer Tracy. He mentioned Barbara Stanwyck. And then Colbert asked him about Brando. He's, no, I got to know him a little bit because we didn't get to work together. But yeah, he's definitely, he means Marlon Brando. He's fascinating. But one guy that Marty loves is Robert Mitchum. Now, Mitchum, he cast in Cape Fear because he remade Cape Fear. And Mitchum's got one of the best lines of Cape Fear. When De Niro first comes out and his shirt's off, he's all jacked up. He's all heavily tattooed. Mitchum's line is, I don't know whether to look at him or to read him. And I, I <laughs> believe it was an ad lib line on the set. And Marty was like, that's brilliant. And the original Cape Fear, Mitchum played the villain. In this instance, he's playing the lawyer helping uh, the good guy, so to speak, which is Nick Dolte. Long way of saying, Mitchum's a great actor. And the reason I wanted to watch Blood on the Moon was... Marty said it was an influence on Killers of the Flower Moon, specifically the relationship with the two lead characters. And it's one of those movies that now when you look at it, it's referred to almost as a noir Western. Like now that you've seen Killers of the Flower Moon, it's not like your straight up Western. Like if you said to your dad, oh, I'm assuming he hasn't seen it, like it's like an old school Western, Cowboys and Indians, like, nah, it's more like a crime Western. Like it's about a plot. And yes, it's set in the West. And yes, there's horses and saloons, but it's not like there's this big showdown of the OK Corral. Like it's not a Western in that sense. Knowing it's a Marty movie, it's a crime Western. So similarly, Blood on the Moon is a noir Western. So you think of those great classic film noirs. And that's what this movie, I think, is really interesting because it combines those two different elements to it. Maddie Lucas from the front row. Mitchum manages to find a sense of moral ambiguity to his amoral gunslinger that elevates the film above your typical western b-movie great blurb and matt brunson of film French. time damn it okay uh, th <laughs> 30 more seconds a good opening act and a great knockdown fight are pluses matt brunson of film frenzy again if you like killers of the fire moon you'll enjoy this film as well an influence of martin scorsese you can go to tcm's website you can see the other films that he mentioned that were an influence on killers of the fire moon this one blood of the moon is fantastic thank you for the 30 second bonus once again those are the five movies that we're talking about here how about one more movie sly is currently available on netflix here is the documentarian responsible for it enjoy
And joining us now is Tom Zimney, who is the Grammy and Emmy Award winner behind lots of great music documentaries. I did want to ask him about Johnny Cash and Bruce Springsteen, but we got to talk about Sly, which is available now on Netflix and had a rapturous reception at the Toronto International Film Festival. Tom, congratulations on giving Stallone a little more love here in the public eye. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, obviously, it would be natural to start with Rocky and Ramble, but I want to start with my favorite Stallone movie, which is Copland. And Stallone in the documentary views it as something of a failure. I completely disagree. I love the fact he put on weight for the role. I love James Mangold's direction. You've got a really adrenalized, macho cast, De Niro, Keitel reuniting, first time since Main Street's obviously Ray Liotta. Robert Patrick is fantastic. Why do you think Stallone is not as bullish on Copland as me? I, I, I think he was referencing the idea of failure that, for me, in the doc, he's referencing a failure that the film wasn't bigger and that the audience didn't, taken his character even uh, as you know he went really far with that role so i think that the idea of the failure is that he's referencing is that it didn't cross over to a wider audience oh. I, I i think i think i love that you want to start with copland because i think it's a film that's just not understood and it's it's such an amazing performance and i was obsessed with it when i was in the cutting room and what would watch it and and sometimes cross cut the young uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone in Rambo with a gun, cross-cutting it with Copland. Just to look at the 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 level that he went through to change your understanding of who he is as a character, the physicality. He, there was one moment in the doc. It didn't end up in the doc, but he told me during the interviews was he he told me this I, that when he was filming Copland that he kept a small turtle inside his pocket to remind him of that role um, and that, how he wanted to portray that character, that he would be slow and moving and, and gestures and that he would not be this strong physical um, guy like he was in the Rocky and, and, and Rambo films. Uh, so Copland to me is an amazing testament to him as an actor, but also what I loved about it is that it's the same guy who, who made Rocky where he's putting himself in the, in this place that's not comfortable and testing the audience's understanding of him uh, as a as an actor or as a character yeah he was able to show that range and like i said with this heavy character monosyllabic simpleton and yet you know once the gears start going in his head that freddie realizes i can do something here you know as de niro says this cupcake makes some noise we get a case again like that's when things start to turn around you do have a great story in the doc i want everyone to see it Tell the story how Stallone uh, goaded an overly subdued Robert De Niro into going full Bobby D. So I, I have this love of Copland and I have a series of ideas and questions that I want to throw at Sylvester. And the first story, a question I throw at him, he launches into a story how he challenged Robert De Niro in a scene, how he went off script, how... Um, he was going to push De Niro to a place that he felt the characters needed to be. Now, when you're a director, you hope for a moment that you, you will uncover a story that just if it's not was not covered during the the publicity tour or something that's new. And I knew right away, I, I realized that I didn't read about this anywhere. This was this was something that happened that he's telling for the first time. And I remember thinking the editor in my brain thinking, all right, I'm going to show this scene as he's telling the story. 
And then all of a sudden, Slight jumps into lines and starts acting out the scene while telling the story. To me, it was one of my favorite moments because he he's literally, he's playing both roles. I, I knew right away that I didn't have to cut to the scene. The editor and me is going, oh my God, he's doing the lines plus telling the story. We can get the whole thing across. This is amazing. So that moment is like one of my my favorite moments where he unpacks how he challenged Robert De Niro. He breaks down his process, but also he talks about the disappointment that it didn't reach a bigger audience. All in that little contained question is it represents uh, the film for me in so many ways because that's that's the energy that he gave me. That's the musicality in his voice. That's that's the level that he was going to to get out of truth. I didn't know what to expect. And I just sometimes had to get out of my own way and let him tell a story. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it, what it did tell me also was that the, the common theme of Sly pushing himself to further his craft or his story or his understanding of his past or who he is as a person now, this was all the elements that started with him as a young filmmaker and, the Copland story demonstrated that theme again and again. Uh, my friend Cabin, I just love that scene with De Niro and the sandwich. It's like, you know, he just, just, <laughs> never give me enough napkins. And the way, like, you know, the way Stallone's like, you know, I, you told me to do the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. And then the escalation when De Niro gets more and more mad. And Freddie says, you know, you guys are all like the rest of that. That whole scene, the way they're both playing off each other is exquisite. It's a, it's amazing because you, you could see in De Niro's eyes in that moment that he's gone past, he's now pushing. And the reaction is is so perfect by Sly, the physical reaction, he's leaning over the desk and he just pulls back, defeated. But but he got he got he got him he got De Niro angry enough to break from the script, to to tear down, you know, the wall of that scene to a place of urgency. And and I love that. That's that 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 reflection reminds me of the young Sylvester Stallone pushing to make sure that the first Rambo film ended on a positive note. He un he understands so much the beauty uh, and power of dialogue, but also the filmmaking process that I think as an actor, you see his contributions all over. It's a real coup. You got Quentin Tarantino in the, in the documentary Sly again on Netflix, and he's just rapturous about the Lords of Flatbush, which is with Stallone's co-star Henry Winkler, who's also in the documentary. How did you discover Tarantino was such a big Stallone fan? I had heard from Sly that he had spent time with him and that they were talking about cutting a scene and 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 um, and Sly was talking about discussing editing with Quentin. And um, and then also I had read an early version of his book that came out that he wrote a whole chapter and dealt with Sly and Sly as a filmmaker. Um, he gave me an amazing interview. It gave me a lot of time to really get two things across, which was his understanding of of Sly in the history of filmmaking and his importance as a filmmaker, but also more importantly, his love of of Sylvester's films, his love of the dialogue. And he really unpacked those early films um, like Lords of Flatbush in a way that gave the viewer a clear explanation of the journey. Um, I, I only had voices that 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 were part of Sly's life or really connected oh. to the man. 
in the, in a way that their life changed. And and I felt that from Tarantino. Did he really write Rocky in two and a half days? I think he 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 wrote Rocky quickly, but I think he was constantly writing and rewriting and editing. He had no, I don't know the exact time, but I think much like other people I've worked with, he reminded me of that kind of artist dedicated to the craft of of unpacking a character. You know, I saw the same thing when I was working with Bruce Springsteen and the darkness on the edge of town notebooks and the river notebooks. You would have a thousand versions of one song. So Sylvester Stallone was very much that style of writer. Um, freehand, just not a typewriter, just going in a notebook, creating a world, a world that was a different reflection than what he got as a kid or experienced as a young artist. He created a universe of, uh, of opportunity and hope. And those characters, they influenced so many generations, you know, the, the character of Rocky or, or, or Rambo, um, down to the expendables. He had, he had that way of creating a body of work that you could step into at different times and, and see where you were and how it affected you. But it, it's also their timeless films. They still work now. Dr. Tom Zimney right now, Sly, available on Netflix, his excellent documentary about Sylvester Stallone. How much of an influence do you think in Rocky, the character Brando and on the waterfront, De Niro in Mean Streets, leather jacket, his look? Like how how much do you think Sly was influenced by specifically Brando and De Niro in that character? Inarticulate bum, as one said. Yeah, well, I you know, I do I have a moment in the film where um Sylvester references I took a little bit of on the waterfront and I cut to a shot of him at the docks in Rocky. Um, I, I do, I do see the references. I see the references of other films like Marty. Um, I just see, I see a cinematic New York that he grew up with. Um, I played films for him and filmed him watching these movies. And one of them was angels with dirty faces. Another one was dead end. There were early versions of Hollywood's take on a tough New York. And I think Rocky pulls on those threads. And I I, I obviously see the connection of, of Mean Streets, but he took it. it what, what I like that is that he took. He, he, he goes to those influences, but he created something that went beyond the stereotype of him just being a thug. If you look at Rocky in, in the leather jacket and with the hat tilted like that, he still is it's unique because he's showing in his face a level of compassion he doesn't beat up the guy for not paying the loan he he's not your typical thug and i think that's where it becomes uniquely sylvester stallone because again that theme comes across of hope redemption yeah that's why it's not a copy of those films <laughs> yeah um it has that thread of of Sylvester, where he's creating that world of hope. It's the ultimate bet on yourself story. It is not apocryphal. They offer him $350,000 for the script. He said, no, unless I get to star in it. And of course, it, it changes his life, changes his career. He's seen other people try to emulate that. Did he have any regrets, Tom? Did he at any point say, you know what? I thought to myself, I probably should just take the money because if this doesn't work out, I'm a disaster. I need the money. It's, you know, I, I was never around him where he would express a direct regret like that, especially with, with Rocky. I think um, what I loved was watching early films of him at times where his philosophy 
he was talking about just the certain choices that he had in 77, 78. And a lot of times they, they were word for word reflected in the interviews I had with him now. So the idea of not taking the money and, and, and with Rocky, especially, I, I think, you know, I, I never got a sense that he looked back at, at his career. I, I do that way, but I do, I do have moments where of humor where he, he's, he came to my edit room and he pointed on the wall and he said, if you knew you could only do 25 films, would you do these films? Would you do this film? Would you do that film? And that, and that brought up the, the, um, stop or my mom will shoot, you know, the the choices there. So there was a level of, of honesty with some of the choices, but there was no deep regret on one particular thing that he expressed. Um, and I wasn't chasing that in, in many ways. Rocky Four to me is one of the ultimate great bad movies because I don't think any critic is going to say it's a wonderful film, but it's just so entertaining and it's just so funny. And he obviously sacrificed a lot. One fight scene with Dolph Lundgren and spending nine days in the hospital. How aware is Stallone of the reputation of that movie specifically? The Rocky franchise, he knows, but Rocky Four is on lists of great bad movies. How would Sly react if you said that to him? I I, I think his recognition of of those films and and it always comes to the place of the where he was at the time and what he was hoping to achieve like he went to a heightened place in telling the story i i you know like that it being on a list of bad films i'm not sure that would i don't i don't i don't know what his connection to that would would be but i do know that he can talk at length about directing it and writing it in a way that was pushing him in a new direction. Like all these choices um, were, were, were deliberate and thought out. And it's like, there's nothing random in, in his filmmaking process. So there's a theme that would come across again and again with Rocky four. He, he sent himself into the hospital and he was beaten to a place in the scenes where, he was at a dangerous place. And that is a theme that comes up again and again, that he takes himself physically to the level of, uh, uh, to the edge. So that's what I really wanted to get at. And and he knew, he would say, these characters are outrageous, but I know they're entertaining. They're different choices. So I think a big part of it is that he recognizes the strings that he's pulling with choosing those kind of characters. But he also looks at it from the landscape of we're going to tell this story differently and we're going to use we're going to use the kind of cutting style that's reflected of the time things are going to be brighter bigger and the characters have to be even more outrageous but you know it's like he's still putting himself through the physical paces that you you question and like what why would you do it and that's a moment i have in the doc where arnold talks about it and says i wish he wouldn't do that he doesn't need to because he, he goes on to do expendables and does the same exact thing but that's a theme that's always there. Arnold Schwarzenegger, you mentioned that the rivalry of him and Sly is fantastic. At times, it, it was genuine in the 80s, right? They're both pushing each other. They're both and now no longer antagonistic. How would you describe the relationship now from what it was to what it is now? I don't know Arnold in that way, but I do have to say that in the interview that he gave, he conveyed um, that thing of time, of friendship, of really, they know each other. And there, I, I had a great sense of respect and love coming from both of them when they would talk about that 
development of being young men competitive against each other and now at this place where they can look back and 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 just say what were we doing what were what were what's what's universal in our goals here and i just felt like arnold gave me such a great side of of the man outside of the iconic character he, he talked about Sly the Family Man in a way that he he's been around, and and that was really powerful and and helpful for, to have a close friend talk about Sly the artist and and Sly the man um, with his family. Got a few minutes left here talking with Tom Zimney. You mentioned the family stuff. The death of his son Sage is just unimaginable for for any parent, and also overcame really tough childhood, abusive father. In many ways, just hated him. Eccentric mother. You know, you got his brother Frank talking about that as well. How's he been able to overcome those personal tragedies? I don't. I don't want to speak for Sly on that he's overcome anything, but I do think the body of work reflects a man who's thought about these experiences and made a conscious decision to create characters and a landscape of film that don't replicate the themes and the experiences that he had. If I look at Rocky, he's got Mickey there for him. Um, and that is a great father symbol for filmmakers, uh, for, for film viewers. It's a, it, as a filmmaker, Sly has created a universe and a world that works against his history. And that's the greatest gift, is that he created a body of work that maintained a simple idea of change, of redemption, of hope. And to me, what demonstrates that he's, I don't, I don't want to say it's, he's overcome anything, but what demonstrates an interesting way to work with the history like this is how he's brought it into his work and then changed it to be a positive force. Um, the, the Rocky character is not a story of a boxer who wins fights. It's a story of a man who's accepted in the world and loved. And when I look at Sylvester Stallone, the teenager and the young kid, he didn't have those two themes. And he created in his writing, in his words, in his musical dialogue, lines of inspiration that we all can quote. This is this is the power of this man and this is the power of this artist. And I feel like my number one goal was to get across that message that we might know him, but there's a lot more to understand. And he, we all carry a bit of his story with us as we tackle the day to day. I think he definitely did that. It's an excellent documentary. I encourage everyone to check out Sly on Netflix. Uh, last one. If there's a Sly 2, Tom, will we get more focus on the softcore pour and the party at Kitty and Studs? Yeah, Sly 2. I, I, it's, <clears throat> it's a good question because <clears throat> he gave me so many hours of interviews that I think we can do Sly 2, 3, 4, and 5. So. <laughs> I uh, hopefully I'll do it. So, uh, so. I, I was going to say one of the best compliments I think I can pay you is that again, if you think of him, people have this image of this, you know, monosyllabic action star, but he's very voluble. He, he's articulate. He's chatty. He's funny. And he's very self-aware. Yeah. And I think that, that, that's a side that just hasn't been explored. And, and I hope this film just, you know, brings the attention to the casual fan and the Uber fan where they go, wait a minute, I didn't, didn't get that from his story or that's a different side of Sly. I've, I've never, I've never experienced that. So that's my goal. 
And once again, check out Sly from Tom Zimney. He's an Emmy and Grammy Award winner. I wish we had more time because I didn't want to talk about Springsteen and Johnny Cash with you. So I'll just leave with this quote. Is this one of the greatest quotes about a person ever, which is about Johnny Cash? It's just that he he walked with God, but partied with Satan. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a great tattoo. I'm going to go out to it. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Take care. All right, take care. All right. Thanks so much to Tom Zimney. Great stuff there. Make sure you check out Sly on Netflix. Thanks to Chris Cody back from Germany. Still hooking it up here on the podcast. A couple more episodes that I think will take a little bit of time for, uh, obviously, Thanksgiving. I don't know if we're going to be still. I'm sure we'll, we'll get it done. We'll figure it out. We're gonna, we got more episodes pumping up down the, the bottom line is this. I've got screeners coming soon. So that'll make things very easy for me. Next week on Cinephile, The Eternals, new Marvel movie. Got to take the kids and go check that out. Also, Poor Things Can't Wait, Emma Stone's new movie, getting a ton of buzz. And I'm sure we'll squeeze out an old movie and a wild card as well. A couple weeks from now, another author, Charlie Chaplin biography. Uh, Going to talk to him about his new book. And Lisa Cortez, who's the director of uh, Little Richard, that documentary which came out earlier this year. So lots of great stuff coming down the pike here on Cinephile. As always, thanks for supporting us. Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. I'll keep taking down Samson every week in the Levitard Show. And I'll see you at the movies. Thank you.